Um, Our text tonight is Malachi 3. We come to the third chapter tonight, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring an offering in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless his word to us now. Father in heaven, as we come to this solemn passage, from this rather solemn book in your word, we pray that you'll bless our consideration of it, that your Holy Spirit would be our instructor. You'd build us up in our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't remember if I've mentioned this since the time we started looking at the book of Malachi together, but the word um, in Hebrew that uh, means messenger is the word malach. It can mean messenger, and and actually just like the the equivalent word in Greek that we see in the New Testament, it can mean both angel and messenger, and part of the reason for that is because that was the essential role of angels, at least with respect to uh, mankind is to be messengers of God. But you've got this Hebrew word malach, and it means messenger. And if you attach the, uh, the possessive first person suffix e to the end, you have malachi or malachi. So the, the name of the prophet who authored this book means my messenger. Um, and so that's worthy of note because the text speaks of my messenger. It's not talking about Malachi, of course, but that's what his name means. <clears throat> what we see in this text is that God deals with people in one of two ways. He either, number one, refines them, purifies them, makes them holy, or, number two, he pronounces judgment on them for their offenses. And you see, those two actions on the part of God kind of parallel much of what Jesus said in his earthly ministry when he spoke about two ways, when he spoke about either tree being good or tree being diseased and bearing good fruit or bearing bad fruit. When he talked about uh, just two ways, two builders at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. One man was wise and he built his house on the rock. 
And one man was foolish, and he built his house on the sand. And it all comes down to how God will deal with us, whether he's going to refine us or whether he's going to judge us. And what this passage teaches, these five verses, as we <clears throat> draw very rapidly to the close of Malachi and at the close of the Old Testament, is that Christ, the Messiah, purifies his people and judges the wicked. Christ the Messiah purifies his people and judges the wicked. We see three points in this text. One of them refers to a certain person. The other two refer to another person. So first we're going to see John, who is the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see Christ, the refiner. And finally we'll see Christ, the prosecutor. So first of all, John, the forerunner. The speaker in the beginning of this chapter in Malachi is God himself. We know that. You know, and when you see these, these first person pronouns, I and my and me, uh, the speaker is God. I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. He's sending a messenger to prepare the way. The, the Hebrew there is not definite, not, so it wouldn't literally say the way. It's, it's more like God is saying, he's going to come and he's going to clear a way for me. And it, it's reminiscent of what happened in the ancient world when a king was going to come to a place. It was very normal for messengers to go ahead of the king to prepare the way for the king to arrive for a visit to a village uh, or to a city. And the thing is, that's not peculiar to the ancient world. It happens in modern times, too. It's happened in every age. When any kind of distinguished visitor or a head of state is going to make a visit to a place, they don't just show up. There's always much preparation that goes into it. Some of you have even been involved in such things, whether you... Uh, been involved in a, in a military setting where a, a high-ranking person or a distinguished visitor of some kind was going to come, all kinds of preparations are made. And, and some kind of delegation from that visitor, whoever he or she may be, is going to be there to make sure everything is in order. And it's no different with the Lord our God. He says he's going to send his messenger, and he's going to prepare the people for a unique visitation. And the first part of verse 1 speaks of a man named John. His father's name was Zechariah. His mother's name was Elizabeth. You know him as John the Baptist. This prophecy is about him. John knew this, in fact, in John chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, John is in the wilderness. He's baptizing. He's calling on the people to repent. He's preaching and preparing the way. And then people were sent to him to ask him what was going on. The religious leaders in Jerusalem heard about John, and so they sent messengers to inquire, to ask, who is this guy? What's he doing, and why is he doing it? And in John 1.19, it says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. 
And then they go on to ask him a few other questions. And then finally, in verse 22, they said to him, well, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He's citing from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. See, see, God had made it known to John that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. And he also understood that he was the fulfillment of Malachi 3. Jesus affirmed this as well. When he's speaking to the people about John in Matthew 11, verse 10, Jesus said of John the Baptist, his cousin, by the way, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus Christ himself said that Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 was speaking of John. We see a little bit more of that in the final words that Malachi speaks. Once we get to chapter 4, in verse 5, you can look ahead to that. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus basically lays it out to his disciples that John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. It wasn't that Elijah was literally going to be raised from the dead and, and prophesy again in person, but that John would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And the New Testament makes that very clear. So John is the messenger that's going to prepare the way. And when that messenger, that messenger has done his work, then Malachi's text goes on to say that then the Lord will suddenly come. Verse 1 of the text that we're looking at tonight uses expressions that convey immediacy, that convey a, a kind of a suddenness to this coming. But the results of the coming of this one are not going to be what the people expect. Because they, to some extent or other, were waiting for their Messiah. They were looking for this one to come, this promised one, and they were hoping that this one, when he came, was going to judge their enemies. But what we see in this text is, yes, judgment is coming, but it's, begun, it's going to begin with the people of Judea. So I couldn't, uh, couldn't help taking some time to just ponder, reflect on, on the, the solemnity of this text and just sort of the awe that the prophets were foretelling the coming of this messenger who is going to be the forerunner of Christ. And it's John the Baptist. And Malachi spoke about John the Baptist 400 years before he came. And then you have to back up another 300 years to Isaiah's prophecy. And he spoke of the one who's going to proclaim every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill made low. The Lord will, you know, the, the passage that, that we cited a minute ago. Isaiah spoke those words, prophesied those words 700 years before John. I don't know what it's like to be one of whom the scriptures have spoken. In, in terms like that, especially. 
And then in that passage that I mentioned from Matthew, where Jesus was talking about John, he went on to say something really profound. He said, among those born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Wow. He's the messenger. Yet, there is a far more honorable title in verse 1 than just this messenger who's going to prepare the way. There's another title. It speaks of another person. And that title is the messenger of the covenant. This is Christ. Christ has lots of names. He has lots of titles. But I find this one to be, just for me, just one of the most solemn of them all. He's the messenger of the covenant. And he comes on two distinct missions. And those will be our second and third points. He comes, first of all, as the refiner. And we see that in most of this passage, starting in the last part of verse 1 and going through verse 4. Christ comes to refine. Um, <clears throat> now, if you look at your, your, your Bibles there, uh, in verse 1, and it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. You notice how the, the, the typeset in your English Bible of Lord, it's a capital L, and all the other letters are lowercase. And I've mentioned in the past, and I'll just remind you again, that when you see Lord in the Old Testament printed that way, it's almost always a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai, or Adon, which means master or Lord. And it can refer to God, but doesn't necessarily. People would call their masters, even human masters, Adonai. So it's a polite term of respect and of honor. And that's what's used here. It's not that word like you see, for instance, um, uh, right before the end of verse 1, where you have Lord in all capital letters, you know, some smaller font, but it's all capital, L-O-R-D. When you see that in your English Bible, that means that's the, the translators tipping you off that that's a translation of the word Yahweh, the covenant name of God, Jehovah, in other words. Um, and so that's not the word that's being used at the beginning of verse 3. And the Lord and the Adonai, or the Adon, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Uh, but even though it's not Yahweh, it's not the word Jehovah, we know it's God. It refers to God, um, when, especially since it has the, the definite article there, the. Uh, this morning when I opened uh, the service, I used Psalm 68, verse 19 because I actually happened to read that in my own devotions this morning. I thought, well, here's a perfect example of the use of Adonai, but it's clearly referring to God, even though it's not the, the name Yahweh, 6819 of Psalms, blessed be the Lord, blessed be the, the, blessed be, blessed be the Adon who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And that's what we have here. It's God. We also know that because it says, whom you seek the Lord whom you seek, which harkens back to what the, what the Israelites were complaining about in chapter 2, verse 17. Where is the God of justice? He's saying, the God you seek is coming. The Lord you seek. <clears throat> Furthermore, it says he's going to come to his temple. And the only one person who can claim possession of, ownership of the temple, would be the Lord himself. So for those reasons, um, and among others, we see a shift. We're not talking about 
one person in verse 3. We're talking about a messenger who goes before the face of the Lord, and then we're talking about the Lord who is the messenger of the covenant. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. He's coming, the text says. But there's a problem. There's a crisis here. Because it says, yes, he's coming. He's going to appear. He's going to come to his temple. But who's going to be able to endure when he comes? It's reminiscent a little bit of back in the book of Amos, when the prophet <clears throat> kind of chides the people and, because they were, they were eager for the day of the Lord. And the prophet says, why would you want the day of the Lord? It's a day of darkness and not light. You, Amos was telling the people, you don't understand what you're asking for when you say, where is the day of the Lord? And that's what Malachi is saying, too, in a sense. He's saying, who can stand? In other words, who will be able to withstand the presence of the messenger of the covenant? This... Uh, it's just like the probing question we, uh, we find in Psalm 130, which we sometimes use as a call to confession. Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There's no one who can stand in their own merit, in the presence of the Lord. Because the text says he's like a burning, refining fire. And then alternately it describes him as being like a stringent, cleansing soap. You see those two terms combined uh, elsewhere in Scripture, in the prophets. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. In verse 25. <clears throat> where God is declaring his intent to come in judgment. He says, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross. That's the refiner's fire. I will smelt away your, your dross as with lye. That would be the soap, the fuller's soap, and remove all your alloy. So Isaiah also combines those two, those two concepts of, of a, a purification that's painful, a purification that's very severe, That's what this messenger of the covenant will come to do. He's coming to do business. And you'll notice it says that he will sit, in verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. When he comes, his coming is going to be such an awesome thing. People might wish, all right, just like they did at the foot of Mount Sinai. We can't bear to hear the voice of God. Please don't let us hear his voice anymore or we'll die. And when the messenger of the covenant comes, there's a sense in which the people might be inclined to say, we can't take this anymore. But he's, he's coming to do business. And he's going to stay. He's going to sit. That's the, the Hebrew word yashav, which means to sit or to dwell. He's going to park for a while, in other words. And he's going to do his work of refining. And his focus, it says, the focus of the refiner 
In the text, it's the sons of Levi, in other words, the priestly tribe. Back in chapter 2 of Malachi, starting in verse 1 and continuing for some time, that Malachi was addressing the priests. He was dealing with them. Why? Because they were the religious leaders of the people, of course. They're the ones whose bad leadership had presided over and assisted in the spiritual decline of God's people. They were the ones who were supposed to be outstanding in holiness. They were the ones who were supposed to be setting an example for the people of God, and yet they themselves needed purification. They were the ones who, in the earthly sense, and in, according to the law of Moses, were acting as mediators between the people and God. And because of their failure, because of their lack of holiness, because of their disobedience, The mediations had broken down, as they say. And the sum of all this is that the refiner, the messenger of the covenant, is going to rectify all this. He's going to make it right. And when he does, the result that we see in our text is that then, once he refines them, Then they will bring offerings that are pleasing to God. Then they will offer up offerings in righteousness. Right relations with Yahweh will be restored. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. And again, kind of tying back to what we heard from Pastor Mark in Hebrews this morning, an expression of that right relationship between God and his people is right worship pure worship, worship that's according to his word, according to his directives, and worship that's pleasing in his sight. All that as a result of the refining work that he's going to do in his people. Christ is the refiner, and his aim, whether we're thinking of it in terms of Malachi chapter 3, or whether we're thinking of it in terms of New Testament, or whether we're thinking of it in terms of the last day, Christ's aim is to purify a people for himself. And that work was ultimately accomplished at the cross and through his resurrection. And the application of it continues to this day and will continue until he returns in glory. That's Christ's work as the refiner. But there's a second mission that the messenger of the covenant comes to perform. And that's what I'm calling Christ the prosecutor. We see that in verse 5. Because remember the text we looked at last time, chapter 2, verse 17, the people had made false assertions about God's character. They'd said wrong things about God. They had said everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. So they had maligned God's character. The people had also questioned God's justice in the second part of that verse. They said, where is the God of justice? We can't see him. When is he going to bring justice? And so in our text tonight, God declares, my justice is coming. And to put it in language that we tend to use sometimes, that's not a threat, that's a promise. And he promises that he's going to bring judgment on all those, essentially all those who transgress his law. And a quick survey of verse 5 shows that. 
I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness. <coughs> ah, sorry about that. I keep doing that. <coughs> I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who hi- oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Sorcerers. <coughs> They're the ones who are involved in the occult, who are, involved, who are worshiping false gods, dabbling in spiritual darkness, and that would be a blatant uh, breach of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. He promises judgment on the adulterers. That's the seventh commandment. Judgment on those who swear falsely. That's the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. Judgment on oppressors. And that crime, that sin of oppression, applies to the hired workers and also to the widows. You had people who would oppress the hired worker, people who would oppress the widow, people who would oppress the fatherless, and who would thrust aside the sojourner. All that is together under this general concept of oppression. And oppression is a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, because it tends to take away the life of others. And also of the Eighth Commandment, because by oppressing the laborer and his wages, that's stealing, when you withhold the wages that are due to a worker. And then finally, he wraps it up with this statement, against those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And that, you could just use that to kind of ball up all the first four commandments, the first table of the law that deals with how we ought to relate to God how we ought to love him with all our hearts. One commentator named Andrew Hill wrote, the, the list of behaviors attributed to the evildoers can be categorized on the basis of a single common denominator, namely the failure to respect and revere God. And so this messenger of the covenant will be a swift witness, as the text puts it, a swift witness against all these transgressors. God's judgment, <clears throat> when, you, when you read language like that, God being a swift witness, it's an indicator that God's judgment will overtake people without warning. I think we need to to get a grip on that. And it reminds me of something that we saw back in Zechariah that I didn't didn't really emphasize the way I might like to have, but if you just turn back with me to Zechariah 14, verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. See, I think that's intended to portray a suddenness to which the transgressors won't have time to react. I think there are many people, in our nation especially, and maybe in the Christian West in general, brought up in an evangelical culture, brought up in a society where there's a basic awareness 
of the average person, the average person, in other words, has a basic awareness of, of gospel concepts. And I think there's a tendency among a lot of people that fall into that category to rest in a, in a fatal presumption. The presumption that they can do what they please, they can live as they please, and somehow when judgment is drawing near, they'll be given a chance to apologize to the Lord and pray the sinner's prayer and everything is going to be fine. But the reality is that day will overtake them like a thief. Why else do you think Christ uses uses language like that? Or the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So I bring that up just to point out that there is this a startling element, an element of surprise that I think this passage is intended to convey. The messenger, the Lord you seek, will come suddenly. He'll be a swift witness. God's judgment, in other words, won't come like a hurricane, or we see it out in the Atlantic. We know it's going to be here in a few days. We've got a pretty good idea where it's going to hit. That's not how God's judgment will come. It won't come like a hurricane. It will come more like a, a lightning bolt. And as the text says, who can endure the day of his coming? Think about the flood in the days of Noah. There were no survivors except those eight people who were safe inside the ark. And in the last day, when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, there will be no survivors except those who are safe in Christ. So you see, the ark symbolizes Christ. And if you want to be safe from the onslaught, from the sudden outpouring of God's wrath in the last day. You have to be in the ark. You have to be in Christ. It really comes down to the question, how do you want to encounter the messenger of the covenant when he comes? Do you want to encounter him passing sentence on you? Or do you want to encounter him purifying you, refining you to be his treasured possession so that he can present you to his father? pure and unblemished in glory? Consider these questions. How do you want to meet the messenger of the covenant? Because Christ the Messiah purifies his people and he judges the wicked and he will without fail do both of those things. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the warnings that your, your word gives us. We thank you that your warnings are all gracious warnings. And we thank you for the messenger of the covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, may we all be found safe in him, and we pray that he would come quickly, and we ask this in his name. Amen.